welcome back to Pictorial on Relay FM. I'm Quinn Rose, and I didn't go to art school, but I still love to learn about art. Hi, and I'm Betty. I also didn't go to art school, but I also love to learn about art, and we're going to learn a lot today, or at least I hope. I am very excited to learn a lot in what sounds like is going to be a two-parter episode. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to talk about, and you'll understand very soon why it's going to be a two-parter. So do you remember, it was actually last year around this time, it was episode 60, we talked about this thing called the Venice Biennale. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And that was a two-parter. So I think one of those two episodes, I alluded to the fact that the Venice or I explained what the Venice Biennale was, which I'll do a quick recap this time. But I uh, alluded to the fact that I found out it's a Biennale, so it happens every other year. But on the other years of the every other year, (laughs) there is a different exhibition, and it's an architecture exhibition. And that I think I might have said, maybe we'll do a sequel. That's the architecture edition. And this is it. Wow. Oh, my God. This is your home turf. This is it's architecture (laughs) time. (laughs) And this is one of the reasons I'm like, honestly, this could be a 10 parter if I really (laughs) wanted to. But, uh, you know, we we shouldn't probably shouldn't spend every pictorial episode from now on talking about the Venice Biennale, but I'm sure we could. So but so what I'll do is this first parter similar to last time, will be a history of the Venice Biennale architecture edition. And then, so we'll kind of breeze through the history. This history is shorter. It's from 1975-ish till now, but there's still quite a bit to talk about, I think. And then the second part will be about this year, the 2023 edition of the Venice Biennale. Okay, very exciting. The the official name of the exhibition is either known as the Venice Biennale International Architecture Exhibition, which is quite long. Quite often is just referred to as Biennale Architectura, which is Italian for architecture. And um, my Italian is not great. So in many cases, I will be telling you what the English name is. But generally, every exhibition, there's an Italian title as well as an English title as well. For listeners who didn't check out the episodes from last year, I encourage you to go listen to episodes 60 and 61, which uh, explains what the art version of the show is. But just for a quick recap, basically it's a international art exhibition that has been happening since 1895. It was originally called the International Art Exhibition when it had its first event. These days, it attracts uh, like over 500,000 visitors. uh, And the architecture edition attracts about half that, uh, but it's still a pretty big, pretty big show. And um, actually, in so the, the, the art version started in 1895. In the 19th, in 1930, actually, I don't know if we, I mentioned it last time, actually three new festivals were 
um, had their spinoffs. E- even in 1930, one was music, another was sim- cinema, and another was theater. The Venice Film Festival actually started in 1932. This might be one that people might have heard of because I feel like film is more people are aware of movies than architecture, I feel like. Have you heard of the Venice Film Festival? Yeah, that definitely rings a bell. Yeah, so that's a thing, and it's a, that's been going on since 1932. So in 1980, the first international architecture exhibition took place, and that was you know a, the architecture spinoff. But the Venice Biennale, the, the regular edition, actually started to have an independent architecture section since 1975. So it was a part of the main show, and then it kind of broke off into its own thing in 1980. So, and then apparently, actually, I didn't realize in 1999, they actually had a dance spinoff. So there is a dance version of the Venice Biennale as well, which I know nothing about. (laughs) A dance version? Wow, there's so much going on over there. In the future, there could be like, honestly, a million episodes we could talk about for the Venice Biennale, but this is pictorial, not the Venice Biennale podcast. So, but that would be fun. (laughs) Uh, so yeah even though architecture they didn't really have its own show until 1975 and then the independent version until 1980 architecture's involvement in the show dates back to almost the very beginning I think last time we talked about the artworks they have to be housed somewhere so in an exhibition how you place the pieces lighting furnishing and basically every other aspect of exhibition design it had to be carefully considered and it had to be designed by someone so architects and interior designers were invited to help design the show pretty early on I think last time I made fun of uh, a design from like early 1900s and I was like I really hope no one helped out with this one because it looks really messy. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like what that might actually be a, a designed one, but, you know, tastes were different back then. Um, and Styles change over time. Exactly. So, and then very early on, there were national pavilions, like Belgian pavilion, British pavilion, German, Hungarian, French. So the those countries quite often invited their own architects to dev- to design their own nation's pavilions. So again, there have been architects, designers participating in the show, you know, for like over a hundred years. And then uh, eventually they started to feature architecture as its own thing. And um, that's pretty much what we have now. And so for the past 30 years, the um, international architecture exhibition has grown to be quite important I would say and we'll kind of talk through the history about how it's relevant and what's actually kind of different about this year and I the most recent data um, I believe was possibly from 2018 was that it attracts Actually, yeah, yeah, it's a little bit more than just half of the 500,000. So the last statistic we have was that about 370,000 people attend this show. Oh, and I forgot to mention, it's a six-month thing, a six-month exhibition that takes place all around Venice, and it goes from May 20th this year to uh, November 26th. And obviously other years, it's a slightly different date, but usually it's about six months. Okay. 
long show. I mean, I know we talked about this last time we talked about the Biennale, but man, they go on for a long time. Yeah, they do. And um, and I should mention, so some, some of you might have picked up on this. So it started in 1980, and it happens every other year. But this year is 2023. And we explained this last time, too. So the 2020 architecture exhibition didn't happen, obviously. <laughs> it was postponed to 2021, which then postponed the art version to 2022, which is why we talked about it last year. And so now it's 2023. So now it's on odd years instead of even years because of covid okay so anyway yeah i'll kind of just go through uh, a bit of the history uh so essentially like i mentioned before in 1975 they held the first architecture exhibition uh, it was curated by visual arts director uh v- vittorio gregotti and um there isn't that much information about this show, so I think I'm just going to kind of skip it to, to talk about the first independent architecture show in 1980, because that one, not only it was the first um, like architecture biennale, it actually, as far as I know, was actually pretty significant and influential, because I remember learning about this in school. Like, it was the designs and the architects who participated in the show it's talked about for some reason in like almost every single architecture textbook for some reason Uh. i just put a couple pictures in the show notes and they're some of the pictures from the very first um, architecture exhibition so it was the chief curator was um someone named uh, paulo portuguesi and he wanted to present what's uh, this architecture movement called the postmodern movement, which I won't go through. I have an entire YouTube video explaining it. It is very confusing. Um, yeah, so if you want to just take a look at these pictures and just do a, like a quick, um, I guess, synopsis of what you, how you would describe these architectural images. All of these kind of remind me, and this is going to be rude, of medieval times... <laughs> <laughs> that's actually pretty a pretty good description <laughs> like there's just something of innately the energy of these is that they look like a set they really they look like set pieces they don't look like quote unquote real buildings they look like buildings that are pretending to be other buildings and there's just like there's a lot of angles and uh like sort of things that evoke balconies and just other stuff that just made me think of medieval times immediately when looking at them. A lot of pillars too, pillars and columns. So that's a really good description. And it's kind of a good description of the postmodern architecture movement too. (laughs) So (laughs) the name, the theme, so every Venice Biennale, I think we mentioned for the longest time has a theme. So the theme of this year's show was, is called the presence of the past. And um, so in a way, those are actually are kind of like film sets. So because it's an exhibition, a lot of the things that were built for it are like temporary or they're models. And these, these some of our, it are like two scale models. So but they wouldn't be they didn't build actual buildings for this show or at least unless they're literally building a new national pavilion or something. These would just be kind of kind of like film sets. But that's not like the only reason why they look kind of kind of like medieval times um so some of the architects that 
uh, participated in this show, so designed these quote-unquote uh, set pieces, are architects like Frank Gehry, R- Rem Koolhaas, Arata Izosaki, Robert Venturi, uh, Ricardo Bofill, you don't have to know who these people are, but these are people that like are in every single architecture textbook. Like I heard them, th- these people's names like a million times. You lost me after Frank Gehry. <laughs> That's totally okay. <laughs> yeah. And so the postmodern architecture movement kind of like I could go on about it, but if I were to summarize it in a few words, it is pretty much people who got sick of modernism so like very sleek and simple abstract like boxes of glass and steel that were very to a lot of people really boring and like soulless so they a lot of them anyway kind of reacted against it and went in different ways but many of them went in the way of let's just throw everything together instead of being like boring boxes, we're going to take every single motif from like Roman, Greek, like classical, Gothic, whatever style you can think of and like throw it on there because, because like, that's what we want to do. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of postmodern designs ended up looking kind of kitschy, which is probably why it reminds you of something like medieval times. That is so funny. Um, and yeah, kitschy is the perfect word for these. And that, like, there's genuinely, there's very impressive worksmanship going on with these. Uh, and, and a lot of them do look super cool, but there is just something that is so kitschy about them. Yeah, for sure. And and because, again, a lot of them were, they, they were taking classical elements from, you know, like whatever. Yeah, like Rome, Roman, Greek uh, inspired uh, designs that's why you see a lot of columns and pediments and like these yeah these things that look like somebody took it off of like an ancient roman building and then and then threw it in this show <laughs> so <laughs> i think because it was quite high profile and a lot of the architects that were involved were like already quite well known like famous architects and some of them were also writers and theorists it, it a lot of these like styles that were proposed in this show, I believe between this and probably other influences, like these types of elements ended up becoming popular. Like they made it into buildings that were built in the 80s. And the reason I know that is because I don't know if you see this a lot, but um, in Canada, every strip mall looks like a postmodern building. Like, I don't know if you like can think of like strip malls and just basically like you know kind of everyday architecture that you would encounter like if you if if this reminds you of that wow yeah I can see what you mean yeah now that I'm turning that over in my head these like architecture movements like if you really if you kind of think about like how they end up spreading in like globally around the world a lot of it is through these types of like you know international exhibitions and things like that and uh, there's other examples of other architecture movements also being like uh, presented in a, a in a way to a large group of people 
in other scenarios, but like this is um, an example of that. So it's like the cerulean speech from the Devil Wears Prada, but instead it's about how <laughs> things went from the Venice Biennale to the strip malls. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Um, um, yeah. So I kind of I'm gonna go through some of the other ones. I won't go through every single year because we we don't have time for that. Um, but I'll go through some highlights. So the show that took place in 1982 so it's architecture in islamic countries so this show was so quite different from the first one that was held so basically um the director portuguese he wanted to draw attention to the influence of islamic culture since the 19th century um and so he basically presented an overview of architecture in islamic countries from post-world war ii onward and so it had um, a lot of different uh, a lot of different architectural works from um, yeah basically a lot of countries you know in the Middle East uh, Northern Africa I- India and uh, the Indian continent and uh, a lot of these places but um, it actually also featured works by some European artists. Um, I couldn't figure out exactly why for all of them, except for the fact that, so um, I think uh, Anthony Gaudi was featured, but I believe it's because he had influences from uh, Islamic architecture. Apparently, Frank Lloyd Wright was a part of this show as well. And I was I was not aware that he had Islamic influences, and it's totally possible. But um, anyway, he was in the show. Uh, and Le Corbusier, um, and he, he actually, because he actually did do work in uh, countries like India, um, as well as, I believe, Algeria. So anyway, it makes sense because his works were in those so in those countries. Um, but in any case, I couldn't actually find a lot of pictures of this show. Unfortunately, um, I was trying to, but it actually had artworks from two of my favorite architects. One of them is Louis Kahn and another is Hassan Fathy. But yeah, I would I would put links in there of pictures from the show to show you their works, but um, it's not in there, uh, or I, oh, I couldn't find it. That's but annoying. It, I, probably because it's 1982, and maybe because it was the second show, it wasn't as, um, and it didn't f- feature too many European architects, so maybe people are like, oh, I don't know what this is. <laughs> so anyway, I would have liked to see it. Uh, I would have liked to have seen it, but I wasn't born yet, <laughs> so. Skipping forward to 1996, the show is called um, Sensing the Future, the Architect as Seismograph. Oh. Is the tagline. It was directed by Austrian architect Hans uh, Holian. And I believe actually this, is the f- this was the first time that an Italian wasn't directing the show. Um, so unlike the original art, Venice Biennale's where I think it took forever for there not to be an Italian directing the show this time it only took 16 years <laughs> but helps when you start later <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so the main theme of this show as so sensing the future um so Hans Holian wanted to look for ways to investigate an architect's ability to sense um the con- so he he described contemporary contemporary condition of time and translate this into future designs. And so this one is where Frank Gehry presented his design for the the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, Spain. Have you seen this building before? <laughs> or seen pictures of it? 
Oh, yes. I definitely have. <laughs> yeah. So this is, um, uh, yeah, probably, again, one of the most famous buildings, probably, um, that a lot of people know about. But yeah, this show was where he unveiled the design for that. But I don't really care about that that much because this show was the first year that Elizabeth Diller exhibited. And we talked about her before. Her best friend. And, I, and by that, I mean just... a Every, everyone we've ever talked about in the show is our best friend. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the interesting thing about this show was up until now, a lot of people who are invited were like really well-known established architects that are like household names or they were just super famous and has done a lot of projects around the world. And Hans Holian actually decided, I want to invite some like younger like emerging up and coming architects. I don't just want these boring old people. And it's one of the reasons he invited Elizabeth Dil- Elizabeth Diller. And because at the time her uh, sh- company was kind of like starting out or I mean, actually, they have been in business for at this point, probably like over 15 years, but they they weren't getting like huge projects and they weren't like, you know, internationally famous yet, but they were obviously already well known in like New York and in the US. So it's interesting because I think he did start at least a trend of uh, inviting people, yeah, inviting people uh, and, and like giving a opportunity for up and coming architects to to have a stage to present their their works. But another thing I wanted to talk about for this show was um, up in, so I think up until uh, the previous year or the or the previous show, um, they were just like presenting different works. And I, last time I think I mentioned there was a period in time where the Venice Biennale didn't didn't give any awards after like student protests and things like that. But then at some point in the I think late 80s, early 90s, they they restarted. So I guess after the bad rap, uh, people after people forgot about it or less people complained they restarted giving awards so this year was one of the first years they were giving awards again and um the award this year in 1996 for the best national pavilion went to japan and it was this artwork called fractures so um i just put a picture of one of the shots from the fractures oh display in there that's interesting I know, yeah, and I just uh, I just put another one in there. Um, so yeah, actually, if you want to describe what you're seeing, and then I can kind of explain what it is, <laughs> uh, unless you can guess what this is about. <laughs> yeah, so the first one, um, it's weird because it seems like you're. It, it it seems like you are standing on the wreckage of a destroyed building. Um, but then when you look closer, you see that you're actually inside a building because you can see the like very typical double doors um, that come in like all industrial buildings. Uh, and it's, I, it seems like maybe there are projections on the back walls that are fulfilling this effect. Um, and then the second picture, I don't even know what I'm looking at. Like I cannot tell what the scale of this is or anything, but it's just this big expanse of... Uh, what it looks like is it looks like I'm on a I'm on a plane honestly and I'm looking out in this expanse of like um, maybe like 
farmland. You know, when you, you're at a play and you look out and like all the farmland is divided up into little blocks. Like that's what it looks like. Um, but it's all kind of like orange brownie. And then there's orange brownie, orange brown ish, <laughs> I guess is what delicious. I mean. <laughs> yeah. And then there's like mountains in the background. The idea for this particular um, exhibition piece, uh, it was, uh, sorry, it was made by a, a Japanese architect called uh, Miyamoto Katsuhiro. And so he was uh, living in this area of Japan called Kobe Awaji in 1995. And on January 17th at about 4.45 in the morning, there was a earthquake there of, I believe it was 7.1 on the Richter scale, one of the issues was that it occurred at an area in Japan that actually historically hadn't been hit with a lot of earthquakes. So it actually ended up being really um, catastrophic and it resulted in over 6,000 deaths. Um, like I think there were 32,000 people that were left homeless, over 200,000 homes collapsed. And it, so, yeah, it was in this like shallow point in this part called the Nojima fault line. And um, yeah, and t- apparently even to this day, the event is like remembered among people for, you know, being one of the most catastrophic events um, like ever really. And so, yeah, uh, Kazuhiro, so he lived through the earthquake and obviously he witnessed the destruction of his own home and, you know, uh, and basically, uh, so he said he just like walked amongst the ruins for, you know, like just days after the dis- destruction and he just remembered and he internalized the landscape um, visually and, you know, like thought about it obviously for a really long time. And but then he actually said wandering around the wreckage in a way was kind of therapeutic for him like it was this visceral experience and he wrote a lot um and then he wrote this line um, it like almost made me cry he just wrote inside me the earthquake and yeah so he's kind of like he's talking about how like you know the earthquake it it shattered and fractured physical things obviously but it it felt like the earthquake was happening within himself. And I feel like the way way you described that first image where like you see all this rubble and you realize you're inside. So it's like you're, you're living in it and it's like, it's, you're internalizing it. So this piece was kind of his way of just kind of expressing like his experience and what he felt and like, you know, the fractured nature of, um, himself really as well as um, yeah like what he experienced but anyway I, I didn't even see it in real life but just looking at these pictures I thought it was really powerful so I'm like yeah I think it deserved the golden line <laughs> so Ooh, yeah that is it, it's it's also such a different take on this than what you've showed me so far on, on like a, a different take on architecture itself I guess uh, not creating buildings but representing the destruction of them yeah exactly so i think that is uh, again like this show was one of the first ones where there were like basically yeah like different expressions of architecture it wasn't just like this is a building that i designed and you know this is another building and this is a model of it and this is a photograph of it and this is a stage set of it which is totally fine and that's still part of the show but 
you know, this is a work of a work of um, an exhibition piece done by an architect. But again, he's expressing kind of like the opposite of building a building, like the destruction of of many buildings. Um, And kind of skipping forward a few more years. So in 2002, there was a there was a show and the title of it was just Next. It was directed by um, British writer and curator Dayan Sujek. And he titled the show Next just with the this kind of very broad um, idea of just wanting to showcase what architecture would be like in the future. And it, so it had a lot of works from various architects that have like sketches, models, and of how buildings can incorporate new technology. And um, the reason I wanted to mention this was actually this was the show where actually a bunch of different architects presented their suggestions for how to restore and reconstruct Ground Zero at in New York because this was a show in 2002. So it really happened months after the events of September 11th, 2001 in New York. And um, so again, I couldn't find a lot of pictures from this show, um, but and so I only read about what some of these designs are. And as far as I know, these were all just like initial proposals. None of these ended up being what obviously ended up getting built of the World Trade Center reconstruction that we we've seen today. Um, but anyway, so yeah, um, and I kind of wanted to just to mention this is just to bring up the fact that um, again, like similar to the 1996 show where the like aftermaths of the earthquake was presented as one of the uh, works of our, or sorry, uh, exhibition pieces. This is an example of, you know, there are contemporary events and uh, other things that make it into the show, such as, you know, people coming up with ideas of how to reconstruct Ground Zero. Wow, that is quite a heavy theme. Yeah, and it and it is interesting. So it's like in one way, the the theme of this show was just like, oh, architecture of the future, and it's like, well, these architects were proposing architecture of the future, but you know, it just so happens the the theme of those ideas is to you know how how they kind of memorialize this tragedy that happened recently. Oh, and then yeah, and I'll just quickly mention in two thousand six, similarly the the show was called Cities Architecture and Society and it featured or it mostly featured designs for cities that have 3 or 4 million people or more and it focused on hardships and mobility and sustainability challenges that are facing um, urban landscapes and so actually it, this year the US uh, pavilion uh actually featured some design proposals for how to build um, after and uh, or to mitigate flooding. So building on higher ground um, and a lot of other proposals, like design resilience proposals. And this was in response to the 2005 devastation in New Orleans um, and the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina. So again, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's another architectural response to a disaster that happened. And I think it's important because obviously, like it, as I mentioned in the show in 1980 started as 
kind of like this visual thing where a bunch of architects were like, look at these like Roman columns or, you know, um, buildings that were inspired by, you know, classical designs. And I feel like that one was more so focused on like, this is what architecture looks like. But over time, it became like architecture can solve problems. <laughs> it's not just like the visual arts. It, it like we want this show to be used to actually address things like how do we mitigate like climate change or extreme climate events. So yeah, like it, it at this point it has incorporated these these other like more I guess like practical and functional aspects of architecture. Yeah, that's I mean as much as I'd love to imagine uh thinking about those things at an earlier period of time and trying to solve them um there it is definitely like a more relatively modern idea of like oh we should be maybe doing something about these things (laughs) yeah (laughs) for sure yeah so i just put in a link to i believe the work that earned the golden lion in 2010 so the 2010 exhibition was directed by um, Japanese architect Kazuyo Sajima and she titled it People Meet in Architecture and this show again it was she took it to a bit more of a it ended up being more like a Venice Biennale like the visual arts edition so there were 44 participants and she gave an independent exhibition space for each participant to build whatever it is for their specific showpiece. And almost all of them ended up doing like some sort of installation piece. And this particular one, that one, the golden lion uh, was by uh, Junya Ishigami and associates. And it's called architecture as air study for Chateau Lacoste. So it's a, two-scale recreation of a project they did um, called Chateau Lacoste. And they basically were trying to recreate aspect of this building at full scale, but they were using these um, like spindly carbon fiber like um, strings, it looks like. And basically they were making like shapes and forms. So that's why I think in the pictures, I was going to ask you to describe the pictures, but you might just be like, what am I looking at? (laughs) But you'll probably just see like it's a room and and a bunch of like random, like very faint white lines. Because I think, you know, again, this doesn't photograph very well. And so what's funny is like if you scroll down on that particular article that talks about this exhibition, exhibition piece there's a sign on one of the pictures that just says i'm sorry it's broken i did see that and i was like (laughs) oh no that's not good yeah because apparently i think so they had like built it and they photographed it and you know everything looked fine and something like the first couple of days like things just like the strings just snapped and they ended up having to throughout the whole show they had to like constantly maintain and rebuild stuff so it ended up being kind of a disaster but they they still ended up winning the golden line but the thing actually the reason I find this kind of interesting is um so for me as someone who's practiced architecture for many years this reminds me of what we typically call a wireframe view 
so sometimes when you're designing something, you would build a 3D model, usually on the computer. Um, and sometimes you want to see like how things look in perspective, but you don't just want to see what you're looking at. You want to see like everything. So you turn on this thing called wireframe mode, sorry, wireframe mode that basically just turns everything transparent. So you you just see the lines around uh, like basically all of your shapes and forms. It might be easier if I find a picture um, and show you what it looks like, actually. Um, and this is a good example, which will uh, help me understand what I'm seeing. <laughs> it, again, it's it might be a little bit too technical, but you basically see a bunch of messy lines everywhere. Is, is that what you're, what you, how you would describe it? Yes, I, that's, yeah. I, I'm like, wow, there's, there's certainly a lot of stuff in here. <laughs> And this might just be one of those things that I'm like, it's interesting to me because I've seen so many wireframe models and I'm like, oh my God, that looks like a wireframe model in real life. But for someone who hasn't had to look at so many of these, they might just be like, I don't really understand what this is. <laughs> but I feel like this might be one of the reasons why it like won the golden line is for like a lot of like inside architecture people. They're like, oh my God, like this is so cool. But like no one else has this imprinted on their brain like us. Yeah, I'm sure people that understand architecture find this really evocative of something. I believe you. <laughs> no problem. But anyway, in the interest of time, we'll move on to the next year that I want to bring up. Um, so this one is a piece that I think also won some of the awards. It was probably also the Golden Line. Oh, and so this article, I think, has a list of a bunch of winners, but you only need to look at like the first five or six pictures. Yeah, and that's the one that won the Golden Line for the best best national participation. Um, so the 2006 show was titled Free Space, and it was directed by um, actually two people this time, uh, y- Yvonne Farrell and Shelley McNamara. And so they're um, practicing partners uh, in an architecture firm together. So um, and so they ended up directing this show, and the theme was like the name Free Space. Um, it's about quality of space, um, like exploring open and free space. Um, so yeah, do you want to describe what you're looking at in like the first, um, about like five pictures of what won the golden line? This looks very fun. I want to walk around in it. Um, yeah. so it, it's, it looks like just a big empty apartment or house. It looks you know, when every, it's all just like white walls, white cabinets, like plain wooden floors. It's very much like this is an empty unit of blah, blah, blah apartment, but all the scale is wrong. So in some of some of them, everything's super big. Um, some things like things things seem really small. And you, so there are pictures with like a person walking around for scale, so you can see. So it almost seems like what like the Museum of Illusion stuff, where um, things seem really big and really small. But I assume in this, it's not just an illusion of the camera trick. I assume things actually are big and small, um, and it. I know this is not the point, but it looks really fun. No, I mean, honestly, I think it is the point because it, it does look really fun. So this was the Swiss pav- pavilion and uh, they basically said that they wanted to uh, they wanted to do an installation that is enjoyable. Um, and then 
just want to explore the scales of domestic space because I think like, you know, domestic space, a house, most people are pretty familiar with what it looks like. And so if there were no scale figures in these pictures, you would be like, all right, this is a home and it looks pretty boring. Um, But like once you see like the tiny little people sitting on a like a huge counter or like trying to open a door that's like 20 times their size. Um, It just, yeah, it looks fun. And it it just makes this what otherwise would be a pretty like boring space um, kind of interesting. And for some reason, when I saw this, like it really reminded me of like Alice in Wonderland. I feel like a modern Alice in Wonderland would like look like this, which is like really tiny or like humongous. Yeah, no, it definitely reminds me of that, too. Let's just quickly talk about 2021, um, because, again, this show was supposed to uh, happen in 2020, and it was curated by architect um, Hashim Sarkis, and it was titled, How Will We Live Together? I'm not sure if this title was already decided before the exhibition or if they worked on it uh, for 2021, Uh, but it is pretty relevant because uh, it's how will we live together? And a lot of people ended up exploring, yeah, how are we going to all live together after this? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, um, And again, there were actually a lot of really interesting pieces in this exhibition, but um, again, in the interest of time I will just show you one of the ones that I thought was my favorite I'm concerned (laughs) (laughs) yeah why are you concerned I'm looking at a bunch of pipes that have lights on them that look like they're staring at me (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a pretty good description (laughs) yeah well I scrolled down to just see the thing in scale and it really is that it's like the it's like a wireframe of a stereotypical house shape um but then it's just empty inside and you just stand in there and then you look at all the pipes that are looking at you Uh, so this was this one actually i don't even think won any awards because it wasn't like a golden line or anything um but um I'll, i'll tell you why in a second why i think i thought it was interesting so it was the latvian pavilion and Uh, They said what they wanted to do was explore human resistance to technology with an installation called It's Not For You, It's For The Building. (laughs) And so so they said it invites visitors into an archetypal... uh, sorry, an archetypal house, um, but it's surrounded by a web of black plastic tubes, uh, which seems sinister at first, like kind of how you described it. (laughs) Um, And then actually... This makes it sound like it it gets even worse. Um, Apparently, it comes alive. Ah. (laughs) And it has what they call friendly winking lights that interact with you. So I think what was supposed to happen is as you walk through it, it like detects your movement and the lights will like flash uh, um, according to your movement. So it's like the, the lights coming out of these sinister pipes are interacting with you and supposedly they thought it would make a what would would have been a sinister looking house become friendly so i don't know when something sinister becomes friendly it just becomes more sinister (laughs) yeah probably um but anyway the reason i thought it was interesting is not necessarily because of the sinister part um and so 
I looked at the uh, title of this work, It's Not For You, It's For The Building. Um, and what it reminded me of, which may or may not be what these uh, architects uh, or installation designers were getting at, is it just makes me think about like all the like mechanical, electrical, plumbing infrastructure that has to go into a building and a house that is almost always totally hidden away and people don't know it's there unless you're in some deliberately designed building that's like industrial and exposed and you can like see the ceiling and all the ducts and stuff which there are a lot of designs like that you know in in recent years but quite often a lot of buildings especially hospital buildings that I worked on you're not allowed to expose the ducts and stuff and it's all covered but for me I have to deal with it every day and it's funny because getting into this profession um you know I never thought how much like mechanical ducts and plumbing and electrical conduits I had to deal with. Um, A lot of people think it's just like, you know, we're drawing nice pictures of buildings when probably like more than half the time we're dealing with these like engineering components. Um, And, uh, and over time I found it, I've, you know, I, I found these aspects really fascinating and I really enjoy actually like working with these um, engineering components, but it's just interesting how no one or very few people actually think about it. And when we're done with a building, we almost never really talk about the plumbing that's behind the wall. We'll be like, look at our design and like how nice it looks. Um, and I just kind of really like that because, or liked how this is like, it's like exposing that part of the building that people would never see. Yeah. I mean, we've certainly come a long way from medieval times. <laughs> yes, we have. Wh- which one do you like better, medieval times or like sinister winking lights? <laughs> Honestly, I've seen, I've as I kept scrolling and saw pictures of it outside that did look really cool. I feel like it was particularly menacing, the idea of it being in an enclosed space like I don't know why but that that is really throwing me but the installation when it's actually outside and it is kind of um, something that you can really walk in and out of and interact with from all angles like that's that's very cool when I was reading about this piece I don't think they originally planned it to be outside so I think what happened was they designed this piece and then 2020 was like put on hold And then I think they just ended up putting this piece outside because they were like, well, we don't know when it's actually going to get rescheduled or something. (laughs) And they um, so people were able to enjoy this work, um, you know, outdoors because it was 2020. So it had to be outdoors. And then I, I do think eventually when the when the official show happened, they were able to put it in an inside space in in Venice so um so it did come indoors at some point but yeah I think the the outdoor setting was actually unplanned but yeah it actually turned out to to be really nice yeah I think that is a is a really cool way to experience it Mm -hmm. so yeah that comes uh that is the end of the historic component of the international architecture Venice Biennale. And so then the next part, I will talk about the 2023 version or 2023 edition. And we will go over some of the themes of that show and we'll go a little bit more in depth to and look at a 
few different pieces because that this entire episode of part two will be dedicated to 2023. All right. I am very excited for part two. So uh, watch this space. And by space, I mean your podcast app. And we'll be back soon. If you want to see the pictures and links for everything that we talked about today, you can do that at relay.fm slash pictorial. Um, you can also find us on Twitter or Instagram at pictorialpod. And you can find me on Instagram at quinsterose. And you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at articulationsv. I'm also on YouTube as articulations. And speaking of YouTube, we have a YouTube channel, Pictorial Podcasts, where we upload video versions of our audio podcasts, um, usually about 10 episodes later. Um, so if you are going on to YouTube anytime in the near future, you will be able to see last year's Venice Biennale episodes. And in a few months, you'll see this one. Thanks for listening, art enthusiasts.